The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of some of the tastiest morsels from this week's coverage. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor, and on the menu this week, Ethiopia goes overboard on football facilities, how a good surf can bring economic success, and why Spain is out of sync with the sun. But first, cheating death was our cover line this week. Man has long searched for the elixir of life, some way to avoid the inevitable surrender to death. Now it seems science is creeping closer to that goal, finding new ways to slow ageing. This is all great news as long as the side effects can be managed. Our cover leader explained. Senescence, the general dwindling of prowess experienced by all as time takes its toll, is coming under scrutiny from doctors and biologists. While avoiding death entirely may still be a pipe dream, delaying it seems increasingly possible. If a body part wears out, it will be repaired or replaced altogether. DNA will be optimised for long life. Add in anti-ageing drugs and centenarians will become two a penny. It all sounds very promising, but who would reap the benefits? If longer life is expensive, who gets it first? Already, income is one of the best predictors of lifespan. Widening the gap with treatments inaccessible to the poor might deepen divisions that are already straining democracies. And societal norms may begin to fracture under new pressures. How many will tie the knot in their 20s in the expectation of being with the same person 80 years later? The one-partner life already on the decline could become rare, replaced by a series of relationships. Indeed, even one career may seem too few in this brave new world. People might go back to school in their 50s to learn how to do something completely different. Perhaps some will take long breaks between careers and party wildly in the knowledge that medicine can offer them running repairs. It's an exciting prospect, but beware the hubris of complacency, we warned. Humanity must avoid the trap fallen into by Tythonus, a mythical Trojan who was granted eternal life by the gods, but forgot to ask also for eternal youth. Eventually, he withered into a cicada. Alas, poor Tythonus. You can find out how to avoid his fate by reading our cover leader. And in our briefing on ageing, we delve deeper into the techniques being tested to cheat death. You can read it on our website at economist.com or pick up this week's issue. Now, as the world continues its struggle with death, our Europe section this week considered one country grappling with the complexities of time. With its siestas and sangrias, Spain is known for a leisurely approach to the day, but as our article explained, its clocks have unwound so much that they're now out of sync with the sun. By local clocks, the sun sets an hour and 20 minutes later in Madrid than in New York City, though both are on the same latitude. Spain, it seems, is stuck in the wrong time zone. Madrid is on a similar line of longitude to Swansea in Wales. Its clocks are set to Central European time, the same as Warsaw or Tirana, some 24 degrees or 2,000 kilometres, that's 1,200 miles, to the east. To understand how this happened, we must go back in time. When Franco drew close to Hitler in the Second World War, he changed his country's clocks to mimic those of Berlin. Nobody ever changed them back. The result is that Spaniards live out of sync with the sun. With some interesting consequences. At this time of year, those hoping for a stroll in the cool of evening at 8pm face an oven-like wall of heat. 
A breakfast meeting tends to be at 9am. That sounds good to me. From Spain's laid-back approach to time, we flip through to our Middle East and Africa section, where one country seems to be working a little too hard. As our article explained, Ethiopia has a long history in sports, but it seems to be overdoing its stadium building. Ethiopians are proud of their sporting heritage. The country's long-distance runners are among the best in the world. We were the founders of African football, says Junedi Basha, head of the Ethiopian Football Federation. As if to prove a point, a national revamp of football facilities is underway. The federal government, which is paying, says eight world-class stadiums, each with a capacity of at least 30,000, are being built. Yet the public aren't quite convinced that flashy facilities are the answer. Football enthusiasts cramming into bars underneath the old stadium to watch European football matches point out that state-of-the-art infrastructure is no substitute for skills. Just look at England, which has a rich, fabled league, but a poor national team. Disappointingly, they have a point. Ethiopia's sporting infrastructure may be expanding, but elsewhere we reported on the tale of a shrinking political and corporate dynasty. In Money Talks, our business and finance podcast, we examined the trials and tribulations of Silvio Berlusconi, Italy's infamous former prime minister. Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, explained how the media magnate is falling further out of fortune. He's had his political troubles, his legal troubles, and and now I think we're seeing uh, a build-up of corporate problems for him. Um, He's getting old, he's going to be 80 quite soon. He had quite a serious case of heart surgery just a couple of months ago. There were rumours that he was on the verge of dying. He really is in, in a fading away position at the moment, and I think he's preoccupied with trying to get succession, trying to sort out uh, who within his family might be able to take on his mantle. As Mr Berlusconi's empire endures some turbulent times, we move on to our finance section, where we explored some waves of economic prowess. Yes, it's exactly as it sounds. An article explained how, beyond simply pleasing surfers, quality waves can bring surges in economic activity. Surfonomics, pioneered by Chad Nelson of the Surf Rider Foundation, normally estimates waves' worth by surveying how much surfers splash out on food, drink and lodgings at a particular beach. But global valuations of waves have proven trickier than this surf and turf approach. A new paper by a couple of economists takes a different tack. They study data on wave quality, crowdsourced from picky surfers and satellite images of nighttime light intensity, a handy proxy for economic activity. Areas around beaches with high-quality waves have over time grown brighter and brighter in these satellite images. Beaches with low-quality waves, on the other hand, remain lost in the dark. And according to their calculations, the value of waves is certainly not just froth. High-quality waves, the authors estimate, generate economic activity worth $50 billion per year globally. That's around $20 million annually for each place with good surf. Next, we take a dip into our weekly science and technology podcast, Babbage, where we discussed some enlightening research in the realm of sport. A new study suggests that although competition can be physically and emotionally bruising, reconciliation afterwards is common and more a masculine than a feminine trait. Here's Richard Wrangham, lead author of the study, explaining why. In animals, and in particular it's been looked at in primates, such as chimpanzees, there is a tendency for opponents after a fight to come together. 
and be friendly with each other, which is very surprising. You know, you might expect that they would, what they would want to do is to have nothing to do with each other. But the ones that come together uh, most often are the ones that have got a, a real interest in having a friendly relationship with their opponent because in different circumstances they might need them. They might need them to be allies against other opponents. So, in short, you don't want the guy next to you on the battlefield to have a grudge against you. Or friends close, enemies closer. You can read more about that study in our science pages or listen to our Babbage podcast, which comes out every Wednesday. We finish now with a taste of our books and arts section, where Johnson, our language columnist, examined the strange tale of the English subjunctive. Subjunctive were is an odd bird. There are 37,704 verbs in the Oxford English Dictionary. Only one has a special subjunctive form, to be. Whereas if you were to look at other languages, the change would be clear. In Spanish, for example, sabe, he knows, becomes sepa. It's required to describe doubts, as in, I don't think he knows. Portuguese even has a future subjunctive for when he comes tomorrow. Sadly, the subjunctive has shrunk away in English. If only it were more widely used. Ooh, that was another subjunctive right there. The English were is the runt of the subjunctive litter, used on just one verb, just some of the time, and not by everyone. And some experts reckon this is not a subjunctive at all. But as our columnist concluded, grammar doesn't always have a clear answer for what's right or wrong. In the recent Coen Brothers film Hail Caesar, a stuffy older English film director struggles endlessly to get a backwards-bred young American actor to master a single line, which both includes and sums up the subjunctive. Would that it were so simple. But then we wouldn't be able to argue about it, and where's the fun in that? I'm Tom Standage, and that was our tasting menu. If you were to send us your feedback, we would be most grateful. Would that we had more responses from our listeners. Via email to radio at economist.com, or on Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.